Prior to Rooted, I was trying to get involved more in the church. Ten weeks ago, we kind of thought that this is about as good and as close as you get to a Christian family. At the beginning of Rooted, I certainly was not as disciplined as I wanted to be as far as studying the Word. I definitely didn't feel confident in my faith and with sharing it and my testimony. Having gone through this program, really feeling like you're getting to know people, kind of really sharing deeply. It's really helped me to feel more confident in where I'm at in my journey with God. 2019 was certainly a turning point in my relationship with God based upon my experience with Rooted. I'm, I'm having trouble putting it in words. This was, this was the most amazing experience. If you're thinking about doing Rooted, do not hesitate. You will learn so much about yourself. I think you'll never be the same after it. Oh my, you have been hearing about it for months and I am so excited about Rooted. You just heard about it some more. Listen, today is the day. Registration is open today. And as we've been saying, this is a 10-week discipleship curriculum called Rooted. Time for us as a church to embrace some change and get rooted deep into the scriptures and into the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And there are limits spaces. We're going to be doing Rooted on a regular basis every single semester, but remember the early bird gets the worm and we have limited spots at all of our campus locations, so you need to go today and register. As I have been making my way around and talking to all the leaders who have been trained and equipped and encouraged, and they are ready to facilitate these groups at the campus locations. These are not in homes, these are at the campuses. These leaders are fired up, and listen, they are all in agreement with me. This is going to be a game changer for our church. 10 weeks in the Word, answering hard questions, reading the Scriptures, praying together, experiencing authentic community like never before. As you can tell, I am fired up, so let's go get this church. Hey, today, I'm so glad you're in the house of the Lord today. You are in for a treat. You get to hear from my friend, Pastor Heather Simple. She is one of the greatest communicators in the country. She loves the Lord. She was the senior pastor at Red Cedar Community Church. Then she went to my buddy's church, Kevin Myers, 12 Stone, Atlanta, Georgia, where she is on staff. And here's what's really cool. She is no stranger to New Hope Church. She taught here about a year ago. I'm bringing her back by popular demand. Many of you have talked about her since she was here, and you are in for such a treat today. So here's what I want you to do, New Hope. I want you to grab those Bibles, grab your teaching notes, grab a pen, open up your app on the phone, whatever the case may be, and lean in. She's going to talk to us today about what it looks like to follow God faithfully in obedience, even when that obedience is risky. It's going to be a great word, and I am excited that you are here for it today. So do what you do. Give honor where honor is due, and come on, let's give it up for Pastor Heather Simple. love you. Like, I hope that your ears have been burning all year long. I was here, and he's right, almost exactly a year ago, and ever since then, I talk about you. I tell people about you, and you know why I love you? Uh, because you're a talkback crowd. Yes. yes! You know what I'm saying? You know, whenever, whenever I speak anywhere, I always say, I preach better when you talk back. So if you don't talk back and you don't like the message, it really, well, it's your fault. So <laughs> I love New Hope so, so much. And Benji's a friend of mine. And this last Thursday, I was talking with him. We were, you know, chatting about this weekend and he shared with me a couple of things. And so I'm gonna pass them along to you. Uh, you know that he's been up in Washington State leading out a pastor's conference and wanted me to deliver to you a huge thank you for your prayers and to tell you that it went phenomenally. So those of you that have been taking that before the throne, thank you, thank you. And now he's at meeting with Compassion International because New Hope, you sponsor thousands and thousands of kids across the globe, correct? Yes. 
and they are planning and strategizing for ways uh, that New Hope can have an even greater global impact. It's very exciting stuff. And he will be back with you a week from today and can't wait. So, uh, but, but meanwhile, I'm here. It's you and me. It's you and me if you're here in the room, maybe you're watching online. We got some stuff to talk about today. How many of you in the room are risk takers? You're a risk taker. Okay, here. This is for free. Um, if those of you that were doing this, you're not a risk taker. Like, some of you are like, I don't know, you're not, all right? Those of you that like put your hand up, yes, you're the risk takers. Well, I'm a little bit of a risk taker. And I'm gonna share with you about a risk that I took uh, here in the great state of North Carolina. And there's a lot of reasons I love North Carolina, but I'm going to share a memory, if I can, with you. This is a safe place, right? Uh, because the memory I'm going to share with you that happened in this great state happened when I was in college. <laughs> Where all good decisions are made, right? <laughs> so uh, I'm telling you this because I feel like we're family now. I've been here before, we, we've got a trust and a bond, all right? So when I was in college, and I attended college at Southern Wesleyan University in South Carolina, and at the time, I was engaged to a guy who I ended up not marrying, praise Jesus, but I was <laughs> engaged to him at the time, and he was from North Carolina, from Franklin. So he was from there, and from time to time on a weekend, we would uh, travel up to see his family. And one particular weekend we were traveling, we were coming up through the hills of North Carolina and we noticed off to the side of the road was a building and I use the word building very loosely. It was really more of a, you know, lean to, um, you know, well, here, the name of the place was called Tattoo Shack. <laughs> now, those of you who are smart, you're already way down the road. Like, you know where this story might be going and you are possibly correct. So my ex-fiance and I, we, we look at each other with no prior conversation, no prior preparation, having not given this 60 seconds of thought, looked at that sign and that shack and went, this seems like a good idea. <laughs> Let's do this. So we pulled off into the tattoo shack and we walked into the door, which we walked into the door and there was, and I kid you not, a guy named Bubba in a pair of overalls, no shirt with a gun in the front of him. <laughs> right? Living large, my friends, in college. And we go in and there was a long table in the tattoo shack and it had a bunch of three ring binders. And in the binders were various ideas for tattoos, just different pictures, things that they had done there previously, but just hundreds and hundreds of options. So we're going through the binders, selecting carefully what we would have tattooed on our bodies permanently. And I come across a binder um, with uh, a lot of characters from the Chinese language. And I thought, huh, these are kind of interesting symbols and um, this might be a fun thing. And you know what, hey, I'm getting married, I have an idea. I'm going to get my maiden name initials tattooed on me in Chinese. No, I don't speak Chinese. <laughs> Never been to China. Um, and, and frankly, had no real direct affiliation with the country. So I'm not sure why I chose that particular language. I just thought, let's do this. So I picked the, he had like these characters in Chinese and then the corresponding um, alphabetic letters from the English language. So I went to H, my name's Heather, you know, picked that character. My maiden name started with a K, so I picked that character. And I had those two characters tattooed on my ankle. Now, all of you cannot see them, but just so you know, I tell the truth here today. Let me let the front row verify. Like, can you see those? They're there. They're there, right? Okay. Because you have to trust me as I move into the rest of the story. You're going to think I'm lying to you. So I proudly sport these things uh, for years. So fast forward 10 years. No longer engaged to the guy. Whew. And I'm married. Married someone else. And I, at that time, was an English teacher in a Christian school in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Also, crickets. <laughs> interesting. It's just interesting to me. Okay. 
So I'm an English teacher at a Christian school. And one particular year, I had a foreign exchange student from China. I know. It just gets better, doesn't it? Right. So, and this was before Google. This was before you would like look up the translation of things in your phone. And she had uh, a little, this device called a pocket translator. And she could pull it out and she could put in an English word and it would tell her the corresponding word in Chinese. And uh, one day, you know, I'm thinking, I wanna connect with her. Um, you know, she's from another country. She's only here for a few months. I want her to know that I care about her. So I'm like having this conversation with her. And I said, hey, you know what would be fun? Uh, we should put my tattoo into your pocket translator. I've always wondered if it actually meant what I think it meant. And she looks at me and she goes, And I think, I think, oh, no, no. And I, and I go, oh, no, no. I mean, you know, I'm her teacher. I hold the future of her grade in my hand. I mean, she's traveled across the globe. She looks like maybe she's nervous about this. What if it says something, you know, that I don't like? And so I want to put her fears at ease. And I go, no, 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 no. It's going to be fine. I promise you. It's going to be fine. I've always thought it might mean something different. And here you are, and I feel like we can figure this out. And she's just looking at me with this look on her face. And so she agrees, and I said, great. So we put in the two characters into her pocket translator, and I'm like, what do they mean? Because I'm thinking maybe they mean, you know, like, I'm winning, or, you know, like, I'm amazing, or superwoman, or whatever, you know, just something. And, I, and she says to me, she's like, oh, um, and she's such a sweet girl. And she's like, um, Mrs. Simple, the top means bad. <laughs> Smelly. Stop. I'm like, well, okay, what's the second one? Because maybe together it will redeem whatever the first one is. And she says, ah, oh, bottom line means um, air, uh, gas. <laughs> she looks at me, she goes, Mrs. Simple, your tattoo means fart. <laughs> I know. Yeah, take all the time you need. I let it sink in. I had to. Let it sink in. Soak it in. And I'm looking at her like, what? Who asked you anyway, right? I'm a little bit of a risk taker. And the risk didn't pan out so well for me. I still have it on my ankle today. When my son was two years old, tracing, you know, the outline of my tattoo as I sat on the couch, mommy, what this? I said, oh, honey, it means Jesus loves me. That's what it means. <laughs> totally said that. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Right? Some risks just don't pay off. And you pay for them afterwards. It's risky. No risk comes with guarantees. Today, though, I want to talk to you about a different kind of a risk called obedient risk. Because there's a risk for risk's sake, and then there's a risk that takes place because you're obedient to what God has asked you to do. And in an obedient risk, there are guarantees. And in an obedient risk, all of the what ifs and all of the obstacles that seem so large to us become nothing because God is a God of the impossible. And one of the things that we have to do as believers is quickly learn to discern between a risk and an obedient risk. And I find sometimes that we don't get it right. And so today I'm hopeful that, that what we're gonna unpack is helpful to you 
And just doing that and discerning risk from obedient risk. We're gonna jump into a passage in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter three. I love the book of Joshua. If you have not read the book of Joshua, you have got to read it. Like it's one of those books that it just really uh, keeps the Bible from being boring. It really does. You know, when people go, I think the Bible's boring. I go, you're boring. You have not read Joshua. It's full of battles and warriors and miracles and God's redemption and the leading of his people. It's extraordinary. And we're gonna go into Joshua chapter three. We're gonna start in verse two, but let me set it up. So God's people, the Israelites, they have been freed up from Egypt. They're no longer slaves. Moses delivered them up out of there. And they wandered around in the desert due to their obedience and their complaining for quite some time, for so long, in fact, that an entire generation has died off. And a new generation has risen up, and it is this new generation that is about to inherit the promised land that was promised to the previous generation. So Joshua and the people are looking at the promised land. They're looking at the place that their parents and grandparents, you know, died trying to get to. And here they finally are. The place they're going to get to root down, raise their families, stop wandering. Promise fulfilled. But in between them and the promised land is a river, the Jordan River. And it's not a creek, it's not a brook, it's not a little babbling, like, like a streak of water. It is a raging river at flood stage. There's no rocks, you just step across to get to the other side. It is a trap that is a matter of life or death, depending on how you move through it, the Jordan River. So here we find ourselves, Joshua 3, verse two. After three days, the officer went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, do what? Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. You know what I'm thinking if I'm them? Say what? <laughs> They're holding the Ark of the Covenant above their heads in order to keep it out of the water. And, and they say, hey, you know what? You guys go ahead and get in the water. The Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, get in the water. Don't y'all know that leaders always go first? They always risk first. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Whew. Been working on that, my friends. Okay. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12, 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, the Lord of the desert, the Lord of the mountains, and the Lord of this river, set foot in the Jordan. Its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Can I get an amen? amen? So when the people broke camp across the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream did what? Stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over 
opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on what? Dry ground. What kind of ground? Dry. While all Israel passed by until the whole nation, mind you, was almost two million people, had completely crossed over on dry ground. It's a pretty risky thing to do, don't you think? I mean, they have their children with them. They've got everything they own in this life with them. And all they know to do is just follow the Ark of the Covenant. Something's gonna happen that you've never seen before and we're gonna cross over. It's a risky thing. I wonder if they considered other options. I would have. In fact, I have. Let me offer you some. I wonder if a few of them considered just waiting until flood season was over. Right? Don't you think somebody in the camp went, you know what, y'all, this, we've been wandering now for a solid, like, 400 years. And um, what's two more months? Let's just wait. Waters will calm down. We'll just swim. We'll just swim across. We'll give all the children lessons. It'll be fine. Or maybe they would have considered traveling to a different destination. Maybe they would have thought, oh, hey, you know what? Let's just go a few miles down. Let's just find a place at the Jordan that perhaps is easier to come across. Or maybe we don't need to cross right here in front of Jericho. Let's go somewhere else. Or I wonder if uh, a lot of them thought, you know what? I feel like we're good. Let's just settle right here. We can see the promised land. In fact, it's very scenic view. Why don't we just stay here? I mean, we're as good as there. Maybe they thought, let's just settle. Let's settle for the view rather than be victorious. And I wonder how often we do that. So close, so close. But then an obstacle arises and we think, well, it must not have been God. And we just stop. I wonder if they thought, let's just try to find an alternative solution. Let's build a boat. I don't know. Let's try something else. But they didn't do any of that. And why? Because it's not what God said to do. It's just not what he said to do. Listen, it's not what he said to do. God said, move out. God said, I'm going to do something. God said, this is going to be your land. God said, consecrate yourself. Move out. And that is the fundamental difference between risk and obedient risk. When God says, you move out. Because when God says, you have the guarantee. When God says it isn't really so much of a risk, when God says it will be hard and uncomfortable and you will have to depend and trust like you never have before, but you will reach the other side. You will. You will step into the promised land. I love the component of this passage where they do cross over. We read about the, you know, these millions of people that cross over on dry ground. But really my most favorite part of this passage is just in the first few verses. Because in the first few verses, we are told how they prepared to inherit the promised land. Because what I want us to hear today is we have to at some point stop praying for the miracle of the parting and ask ourselves what we need to do to prepare to inherit that promise. And we like to skip over all of the things that they did and get to the part of the big splash and the big miracle, you know, Red Sea, the sequel. And we keep asking God where it is. Where's my miracle? Where's my miracle? And God's saying, hey, 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 let's just step back for a moment. So I wanna walk you through two things that I think we see the Israelites do in this scenario that not just prepare them, but can prepare us for holding a promise. The first one is this. Obedient risk requires God's presence. They understood God's presence. 
Let's look at verse three and four again, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before, but keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. So when you see it, move out, follow it, but keep a distance from it. See, there are no details in the Bible that are happenstance, or it's not because the author just decided to get wordy. What's he, what he's telling us here is that the Israelites are to look at the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord God, because the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God. It's before Jesus arrived. It's before the Holy Spirit would indwell them. It's before all of that. The Ark of the Covenant was God's presence itself. So there he's saying, follow this, don't look at the promised land, follow God's presence. Stop looking around, stop planning and plotting and just look at his presence and stay 2,000 cubits behind. If you stay 2,000 cubits behind, it forces you to focus on that alone so you don't get lost in all the horizontal stuff around you. Focus. And staying 2,000 cubits behind ensures that you're not gonna walk up beside it or get in front of it or get ahead of God or try and, try and lead God towards where you want him to go. Stay enough behind it, you have to focus on it and just be with his presence. God's presence is critical to get to the promise. It's just critical. And I'm, I'm just, you know, like you, I so often want direction more than I really care about his affection. I think it's his direction I need. I just need you to tell me what to do. I just need you to tell me where to go. I just need you to tell me what to say. What do you want for my life? What major should I take? What job should I take? Who should I marry? Should I stay married? What do I do with my child? How am I gonna make more money? How am I gonna get this bill paid? Where's my miracle? Part the river, Lord. And God's saying, could you just focus on me? I was the giver of the promise. He says, I own the land. I'm gonna deliver it into your hands. I just need you to follow me. Several years ago, uh, I got to travel with my dad and my brother to Israel. And my dad has led many, many trips to Israel and he even studied over there when he was younger and a student. And so it was one of his lifelong dreams that he would take my brother and I with him one day. So several years ago, it finally happened and we went with him to Israel. We arrived there later in the day and we were so tired from jet lag, uh, but my dad was so, so excited that we were finally there. It's nine o'clock at night over in Jerusalem and Jerusalem now, and now is a very, very large city. And inside of the new city is the old city of Jerusalem, which is where all the things take place that you read about in the Bible. And so it was late at night, dark, and my dad says, I'm just so excited. I would just love to take you and your brother down right now, just us, before we have to lead the big touring group tomorrow. Let's just go down and let me show you the old city and the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is a place that anytime you take a trip to Israel, you go. It's on the back of, of what was used to be the temple and um, people go and they put their prayers and they stuff it in the cracks. Maybe you've seen pictures somewhere or something and, and you go and there's just thousands and thousands of people's prayers inside of the cracks of the wailing wall and all the Jewish people are there praying and he really, really wanted to take us. And we're like, okay, okay, let's go. Now, my only interaction with Middle Eastern culture up to that point in time was the news media and the show 24. <laughs> okay. So I had a very poorly framed paradigm and we go out into the streets of Jerusalem at night and I'm terrified and I start to experience what people will often call culture shock where literally you kind of go into this like almost paralysis of being able to move and function. And my dad's like, this is great, you know? And I can barely breathe. I'm having like a little bit of a panic attack, um, but I'm a risk taker and I don't wanna, you know, like be like, I can't do it, so I'm fine, I'm gonna be fine. And 
we get to the old city, we go through the big gates and the old city is uh, very dark and it's small. And the little um, alleyways are cramped, there's cobblestone and it was nighttime. So people were taking down everything that they had had up for the markets. And so um, from all the meat that was hanging, there was blood running down the cobblestone streets and it was foreign smells and just a lot of people in very cramped and I just could barely breathe. My father seemed to know where he was going. So I thought, here's what I'm going to do. I got up behind my dad, who's walking at a very fast pace, and I grabbed a hold of the back of his shirt, and I got so close, it only allowed him to take a big enough step to walk, and I closed my eyes, and I just pressed in and followed. And after a few minutes, I could feel the air change. Like, I could tell that there was just a different kind of air and my eyes were closed. I could sense that there was light. So I released my hands and I looked up and I was in this huge open corridor. You could see the night sky and the stars and all lit up in front of me was the wailing wall. And we just spent some time there and we happened to be there on Shabbat on their Sabbath and watching people pray. And it was an extraordinary moment. The process of getting there was difficult for me. And here's what I knew. If I could just stick close to my father, he would get me there. He knew where we were going. He'd been there before. He was not afraid. He knew how to deal with anything that we would encounter along the way. He knew what obstacles to tell me to walk around, skirt around, push through. I closed my eyes, literally held on to him and just trusted. I think God so often looks at us and I think it grieves him to see the fear and the worry that we choose to live in simply because we won't stay close to him. And you know why? We don't actually think it will work. We just don't. If we really believed that we could fully depend on God and he would always deliver on the promises that he's made, we would be freed up from worry. We would stop taking things into our own hands. We would stop derailing his plan and him having to say, okay, let's course correct you. If we really believed that inside of his presence, it was enough, because if inside of his presence, it wouldn't be enough, we would tell ourselves, no matter what happens, I'm gonna be fine. If it goes wrong, I'm gonna be fine. If it blows up in front of my face, it's gonna be fine. No matter what comes, I'm going to be fine because I'm with the Father. Is he really enough for you? See, the Israelites were told, look at the ark, focus on God's presence. Otherwise, the promise is going to take too high of a priority and you're gonna start looking backward and you're gonna become afraid. But if you look at that, you're gonna be able to cross over on dry ground. Preparation happens in God's presence. It's where it happens. You know, King David knew this. King David is one of my favorite people to read about in scripture. And David was called a man after God's own heart, right? And all through Psalms, you can read how David wrote, no matter what happens, Lord, no matter what happens, if Saul takes me out, if I never become king, no matter what happens, it's fine. Just don't take your presence from me. You can take anything else and just don't leave me. Because David knew that was his lifeline. That was his air source. That was what the key was for him to being able to sustain in this life. God was peace, God was power. Take anything you want, just don't take yourself away from me. I think it's fascinating too, because I, I think you know, my logical mind, and maybe some of you are wired this way, we would see an obstacle and we would go, okay, well, I'm kind of gifted in plan making. So, hey, I got this. I'm gonna go over and I'm gonna make a plan on how to cross a river. 
I could cross a river and let me make this plan. I'm gonna delegate some things and we're gonna build some things and it's gonna be extraordinary. But I wonder if God thought there is seriously no point in you building a plan for a river because on the other side of the river is Jericho. That's a whole different kind of thing. That's a whole different kind of battle you're gonna fight. You're gonna be walking and walking. Your kids are gonna be asking, are we there yet? And you're not gonna wanna do it and you're gonna wonder if I'm gonna show up in the very same way you're doing now. If you build a plan for a river, you're never gonna reach the promised land. And when you get there, you're not gonna be prepared for what's coming next because God's presence is what prepares us for the promise and not our own plans. It's just not. The second thing that happens in preparation, I believe, is there has to be a commitment to purity. In verse five, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourselves. And in that day and time, there would have been rituals. There would have been um, religious offerings that they would make in order to make themselves clean, to be forgiven of their sins. And Joshua is saying, get right before the Lord for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. I wonder how many amazing things among us God is longing to do if we would just consecrate ourselves and live holy as we have been made holy. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, from the moment that occurred, from the moment you surrendered your life to Jesus, you were made holy. I know it's crazy, isn't it? It blows my mind that when I gave my life to Jesus, I was made holy. That there were no barriers anymore between me and God and I could commune with him and be intimate with him and talk with him freely, me unholy to holy. But way too many Christians are walking around having been made holy, but they're chasing happy rather than holy, not understanding it's holy that leads you to happy. And in the same way, the Israelites were commanded to consecrate themselves for tomorrow, the Lord was gonna do amazing things among us. I think today in our world, in our day, in our time, God is saying, church, Church, consecrate yourself. You are my holy people. Live holy as you've been made holy because tomorrow I'm gonna do amazing things among you because you know Jesus is coming back someday and the only thing he's coming back for is the church. The bride of Christ having been made holy, if we lived as holy, don't you think that those who are not currently in the church might just long to be part of the body of Christ because they would see a different kind of life and a different kind of hope and a different kind of peace? They're all facing rivers. They're all facing mountains. They're all facing obstacles and we hold the truth and the secret and yet we are standing on the edge of the river going, I just don't know. I just don't know. Purity. I've learned, and often I learn the hard way, as evidenced. <laughs> but I've learned that um, tomorrow's promise can never be sustained on yesterday's obedience. That whenever God calls me into something new, and I try and apply the same things I've always done to the new situation, they fall short. The same spiritual disciplines, the same kind of time with the Lord, the same um, rhythms and habits in my life, the same kind of lifestyle, no longer sustains the character or the competency I need in order to move into the new. And God was saying to the Israelites, I'm gonna move you into a new thing. I'm about to fulfill the promise. If you think that what you've learned back here in the wilderness is gonna be enough to sustain you against the giants and the enemies and the battles you're about to encounter, you gotta another thing coming. Consecrate yourselves. Make yourselves new. Make yourselves clean because when we get over, I'm going to have to make you into warriors. My husband and I, we've been married almost 20 years and we have three children. And when we first got married, every, you know, our, our premarital counselor said, y'all should not get married. <laughs> I mean, literally looked at us in the face and went, this is not a good idea. And of course, we thought, what do you know, professional expert? 
we, we know. See, we had all kinds of baggage. Now, I know everybody has baggage, but I think that Jeff and I had like conveyor belts, you know, like just, whew, like truckloads of baggage. Oh, uh, Jeff was 11 years old. He was introduced to pornography. Now, actually, if you want, the actual new statistic is that uh, children now are introduced to pornography the first time at six years old. Um, he was introduced at 11, and um, when his parents found out, you know, they were told boys will be boys, and so nobody really ever did anything about it, and it just stuck. So he grew up and grew deeper into this addiction. I was bullied as a young girl, and uh, I lost sight of what my value and my identity was. And I started to believe the words that were spoken to me and over me. And then I started to seek out value and identity from all the wrong places. So this person who was a user married a woman used to being used and it was just a recipe for disaster. So we did what made perfect sense and we got into ministry. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. You're welcome for that wisdom. Now, see, here's the thing. We knew about God's call. We knew that. And we just thought we're gonna go ahead and step into the call even though we had not prepared impurity to be able to hold it. So we stepped into this call of God and then Jeff lost his job in the first church for a pornography addiction. Like a year and a half in. We're out of the church. And it would have made sense then for us to take quite a bit of time out. Heal, find wholeness, redemption. Like you don't just, that stuff, you gotta move through all the entanglement of what addiction is. And we didn't. We just said, no, 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 ministry. That's the thing. That's God's call. That's God's promise. Gotta get in it. So we got back in it. And things went from bad to worse. Infidelity entered our marriage. Jeff lost his second job at a church. We found ourselves um, jobless, incomeless, two children at that time, living in a home that was $400 a month with mice everywhere and we couldn't even afford the rent, could barely afford food. I was going down and I was part of every government assistance program that existed in order for us just to be able to function. And I wondered, what in the world, God, you've called us? You've called us. Where are you? Part the rivers. And God's saying, consecrate yourselves. Tomorrow, I'll do amazing things among you. But you gotta, you gotta get right. Stop trying to build on what's broken. Amen. Yesterday's obedience cannot sustain tomorrow's promise. It cannot. If this took you out here, can you imagine what the enemies out there are gonna do to you? We did, we stepped out. Went through three years of intensive restoration. So we were in counseling sometimes three times a week just to be able to be in the same room. And I say three years, and in the grand scheme of life, that doesn't seem like very long, but let me just tell you something. Three years in that kind of scenario is a really long time. A really long time. Every day felt like an eternity. But God did amazing things inside of our hearts and in our souls, and he never removed the call. He didn't remove the promise but he took us through this restorative place in this place of consecration, in this place of getting ready, in this place of engaging in his presence, learning to hear his voice, just learning to be with him. We had to learn to be with him. Let him complete us. You know, when you get married and you think the other one's gonna complete you and fix things? By the way, this is also for free. (laughs) The whole you complete me thing, No, nope. If anyone says you complete me, run away. (laughs) Run away. Run away. Here's why. Let me paraphrase for you. Uh, You complete me. I am severely deficient. I am lacking in many ways. 
Um, and I'm going to suck the life out of you for however long you will allow it. Right? It's not romantic. Even if he looks like Tom Cruise. Not romantic. No matter what is real for you right now, no matter what the river is for you, and I don't know the promise. I don't know what God has called you to. I don't know what your hopes and dreams are. I have no idea. What I do know is that God can redeem and restore anything and you're never too far gone and there doesn't have to be a plan B. God can always restore you to plan A. God can always take the wreckage of your life and redeem it and you can still live in the immeasurably more. You can live in the immeasurably more. I wake up every day and look around at my life and go, are you kidding me? How did, what, me, still? I don't even, did you, are you sure? Jeff and I still look at each other and go, I don't know. We love each other. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> you know? Like, God just did a work in our life and the things that he's been able to do in us and through us, and I'm telling you, it only happened because we focused on his presence and we decided to live in purity. What is it for you? What is your obedient risk? What is it? Again, I don't know what it is for you, but here's what I honestly think. I don't know that you have to know. I don't know that you need to know. God has never failed to present what he wants to present when he wants to present it. And if you're like, I don't know what it is, I don't know what it is, okay. Why do you need so much to know the direction? Maybe he's forcing you to desire his affection. Stop looking over there at the promised land. Stop, stop it. Let him lead you. The bottom line of all of this today, if I did just strip it down to one thing, it's this. God speaks, you obey. God speaks, you obey. He speaks, you obey. He speaks, you obey. Here's what he does. He speaks and then we start praying about it. Stop it, no. Like how many times people come up to me and say, here's what God has told me. I'm gonna go pray about it. I don't think you need to. God has spoken. He has said it. You don't need to go pray about it. I feel like God just sits there and shakes his head and go, I already said it. Why do I need to repeat myself, right? It's like me with my kids. I said it the first time. He speaks, you obey. Say what he speaks to you. Move where he moves you. Go where he sends you. Remain where he roots you. What is he whispering in your ear? Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a minute. Just sit with the Lord, just sit with him. Listen for him. What is the obstacle? What is the, ra what is the raging river? Maybe in order for it to part, you need to take an obedient risk. You need to get your toes in. Maybe that means for you, there's a confession you need to make. You gotta come clean about something. Hidden sin will always keep you from the promised land. It always will. It will always keep you looking at it and never entering it. Maybe there's a confession. Maybe you need to address a conflict in your life. Maybe the big, the big hurdle is just that you need to have a conversation and you've just been avoiding it. Maybe it needs to be with one of your older children, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, employer, 
relative. And until you have it, you're never gonna be freed up. Maybe God is calling you to a new career. Maybe he's called you to ministry and maybe you've been pushing it down or maybe he's called you to do something different and you just know it would take a lot of risk. You'd have to move a lot of things around. You'd have to take a different salary. You would have to do something that's out of your comfort zone. Honestly, I wonder for a lot of you in the church, your obedient risk is something as simple as just serving in the church. <coughs> or maybe your obedient risk is to start giving. Everything you own is from God anyway. Maybe it's time for you to start surrendering your finances. What is it that God is speaking to you? And when he speaks, you get a choice. You get a choice to obey or not. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just breathe, breathe on these people, on their hearts and their lives. Holy Spirit, would you fill them fresh and anew? Would you compel where it needs to be compelled? Would you convict where conviction needs to set in? And just pray against any sort of condemnation, Lord. But I pray that where the Holy Spirit, you need to speak, that it would be received. Lord, a church obedient is a beautiful thing. A body of believers obedient is a powerful thing. I pray that through these decisions that are made today, that chains would be broken and people set free and that it would have a ripple effect generation upon generation. We thank you for your word, the power of your word, the stories in your word that we find our story in. You speak, we obey, Lord. All of this for your glory. We surrender. We surrender our will to yours. In your name, amen. We're gonna sing together the song, I Surrender. The I Surrender All. Those are really, really weighty words, guys. I Surrender All. I would encourage you to think about the words that you're singing and determine if they're real in your life and to use this space as a space to commune with God and talk with him and offer back your obedience. Let's sing together. <laughs>